Most of us at one time or another try a sport, but only a tiny fraction become so good that we call them elite, the best of the best. Most get there through an incredible work ethic that starts as a child and usually dominates their young lives, often at the expense of their education and social lives. For most, the blood, sweat, and tears results in just a few years at the top of that mountain. What then? Have these elite athletes prepared for life after the glory? This podcast celebrates the lives of these elite athletes through conversation stories and a few laughs along the way. And now your hosts, Lucy Sang and Gary Stern. And thank you, Mark Allen. Gary Stern here along with my co-host and co-creator of After the Glory podcast, Lucy Sang, with a very special guest recording in the early part of August in the last week of the Summer Olympics taking place in Tokyo. And we have with us Nancy Hogshead Makar, a hero from the 1984 Olympics, but so much more than that. Lucy, I don't remember an, a guest that we've had who has had more of a life of meaning and purpose since the days of sport than Nancy. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'd even argue to say, you know, Nancy's accomplishments as an athlete may not even truncate, you know, what she's done beyond her role as an athlete. It's just absolutely incredible. And I'm so grateful to have crossed paths with Nancy today. It, it's wonderful. Uh, as our uh, guests or our audience may know from if they think back uh, in 1984, right here in Los Angeles, California, Nancy Hogshead Makar. Uh, as Nancy Hogshead was a three gold medal swimmer for the uh, United States plus a silver. Uh, She was on the Olympic team of 1980 that unfortunately could not compete due to the, at that time, the politics of boycott. Uh, Began her international career in 1977. Nancy Hogshead after the Olympics went on to Duke University and then the Georgetown Law Center where she became a lawyer and I dare say, Nancy Hogshead Makar is the authority in the world on Title IX, the vital law of our country that provides for gender equality and equity uh, in, in all things sports. Uh, she is currently the CEO of Champion Women, an organization leading targeted efforts to advocate for equality and accountability in sport. There is so much more. The awards. The honors are incredible. Perhaps we'll get to some of them during the uh, show. Nancy, it is a privilege to have you with us on After the Glory. Thank you for that gracious introduction. That was very nice. I appreciate it. Every elite athlete starts out, and they don't really think they're going to be elite. I like to refer to swimming, along with other sports, as the universals. That is, everybody in the world swims. Everybody has picked up a baseball. Everybody has shot a basketball. Not everybody is pole vaulted or shot-footed. <laughs> and so in the world of swimming, it starts somewhere. You were born in Iowa, not the hotbed of swimming, but then moved, <laughs> but then moved to Florida. Tell us about how you got started and when it became something serious for you. No great beginnings. My parents just bought a boat, a little 17-footer ski boat, and they wanted to make sure that me and my brother could swim a mile onto shore if something should happen. And my first coach ever is Eddie Reese, who is now a um, probably 
10-time Olympic coach. He's an, he's the head coach at University of Texas. They are national champions many, many times over. But he was probably 24 years old, just getting started, and he made it really fun. When I was 11, we moved from Gainesville, Florida, uh, to Jacksonville, Florida, which is where I'm calling from right now. And uh, there was a, another great coach there, his brother, Randy Reese, who said, Nancy, if you want to be great, you can be great, but you got to stop missing practices. <laughs> you got you to gotta work while you're here and you got to, you know, so right around the age of 11, 12 is when I, you know, quote unquote, got serious is when I stopped all the other sports and I was dancing a lot and gymnastics. And well, Nancy, even when you got serious at the age of 11, were you thinking about the level of eliteness that you ultimately achieved? I, I didn't think I could do it until I did it. Mm. So when I was 12, I made it onto senior nationals. So this team that I was on was a very elite team. I had never heard of nationals and everybody was talking about nationals. And so um, so I, um, I kind of moved on to the A team probably before I was ready for it. You know, I was probably a little too young, but by the time I was 12, I was a national record holder as a 12 for the, that age group. Right. And I went to senior nationals. And then by the time I was 14, I was number one in the world. So from 1977 on, certainly, I fully expected being world-class to, to, um, to go for the Olympics. What, 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 do, you think, what do you think is the, is the secret? Is it DNA? Is it genetics? Is it hard work? Is it a combination? Can, can a, a person achieve that level by surely what they were born with, or is the hard work a central part of it, at least in your experience? Gary, I'm just gonna take myself out of that race right now. <laughs> no matter how much I <laughs> swim and practice, I don't think I would achieve what Nancy has. <laughs> no, I, yeah, no, I, I think it's both, but I'll say that every single person that I swam with, every single person on the national or Olympic team had their own reputation as being this incredibly hard worker. And it sort of had different flavors, like different flavors of ice cream. There were no slackers. There was nobody there that was there just, you know, by talent or, um, and some some of the swimmers like uh, Steve Longquist used to joke about, you know, he, he wasn't gonna work hard. But he did. I mean, we all did. And I don't know anybody that didn't um, have to work. Trump. I, the average person, like usually when I, like if I give a speech or something, and so I always start off, you know, how many laps a day do you think you've got to swim to be the best in the world? And most audiences start around 200. And the answer is 800 a day. Oh my. I mean, that's the hard part of the year. That's when I really want to impress you. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. not year round. Oh, that's, just a, that, that's incredible. Right. Um, you made it to the team in 1980. Um, and you got your first taste of, I think, a world that maybe you hadn't thought existed. How disappointing was it? And how did you get yourself mentally ready to come back in 84? Well, Everything you just said, I didn't do. So one of the, um, in 1980, um, the Soviet Union, and back then it was the Soviet Union, they invaded Afghanistan. And it was, it was sold to us as this was for world peace. My brother had to register for the draft. And I thought this was something noble that I was doing by not going to the Olympics. So I was an Olympian, they had a big parade and everything else. Um, I had never been to an Olympics before, so I didn't really know, frankly, what it was that I was missing. 
And I went on to major in political science at Duke and realized like, boy, were you ever lied to? You know, that was just a punk. That was just, it was nonsense. But at the time, it really did make it easier. And I actually wrote an open letter to this this year's Olympians to say, you know, I hope you find some, a noble purpose in having to give up your Olympic dream for a year, that you're doing something for world health. You're doing something for all of us so that we can get over this pandemic that much faster. Because you know, it really will help if you find a higher purpose for what it is that you're doing. Then um, I did not, I thought like that was it. I thought that was my Olympic dreams were completely over and I was not going to, you know, like, okay, now I'm, and I wanted a full scholarship and thank goodness for Title IX, the law that we talked about before, because had it not been for that law, I would not have been able to do it. Um, And um, my coach, my beginning of my junior year, he said, um, Nancy, he said, look, if you want to keep your scholarship, all you have to do is come to the meets. You don't have to we'll go to workouts. You don't have to do anything else. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm getting a full scholarship to Duke University. And and I thought I would be OK with not winning. And <laughs> he knew me better than I knew me because I was not okay with even the idea of getting second. When I first went back for warm-up, I was too out of shape to really warm up. And, uh, but, but I did win and I did go fast. It happens to a lot of athletes when they take a significant break from their, and their bodies get a chance to kind of um, heal, if you will, from so many years of training. So it was because of that, that I, I sort of, it was like, it was like a ball that I had dropped and it like bounced back up into my hand. Like I wanted it again, like, right. It all came back. So, but in order to do that, I couldn't do it at Duke. Uh, They did not have the right training partners or the right coaching, et cetera. They just weren't equipped to handle an Olympic athlete or training. So I went out to California and I trained out there. And um, so I left college for a year and a half and my parents are very funny. They were like, let me get this straight. You want to leave college for a year and a half for a swim meet. <laughs> Nancy, we're going to uh, we're going to take a break at this point, uh, catch our breath, uh, much like I do when I'm in the pool. I have to catch my breath every 10 seconds. Uh, and when we come back on After the Glory with Nancy Hogshead, Makar, and my co-host Lucy Singh, we'll dive into the pool. University Credit Union has been providing a financial edge to members for over 70 years. Now you can earn more with University Credit Union. Earn up to 5% APY with a university checking account for the banking that you already do. You'll save more when you switch your deposits and loans to University Credit Union. Bank with your brain. Visit ucu.org to join today. Federally insured by NCUA. Terms and conditions apply. This is Lucy Sang from Resiliency Coaching. I am a certified mental performance coach focused on working with athletes transitioning into life after the glory days of sports. I help like-minded people become high performers and thrive in all areas of life. My goal is to serve as your accountability partner and offer different perspectives as you make tough decisions. Learn more about me on Instagram at resiliency underscore coaching 
R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-S-E-E underscore coaching. And thanks for tuning in to After the Glory. And we're back on After the Glory. This is Lucy Singh with my co-host Gary Stern and our special guest, Nancy Hogshead Makar. Nancy, thank you so much for being here with us. You know, hearing you talk about the Olympic experience and currently being in our 2020 Olympic experience, would love to hear more about what it was like when you found out you were going to 1984. The difference between first and seventh place at Olympic trials was two tenths of one second. So it was just this wall of women coming in. And um, yeah, that was the biggest, it's very relieving. It's, <laughs> it's uh, and um, my parents are not like your average swimming parents. They did not go to a lot of meets. It really wasn't their gig. And so um, to have them there and to be able to celebrate with them and with all my teammates, we all worked so hard, was, was really great. Let me ask you, as you began the experience of the 84 Olympics, you were already at Duke. And obviously, you had in mind a, a, a life, a career away from the sport. So many athletes are so focused uh, as young people on their preparation they often sacrifice their social life and academics even. You clearly did not. How did you balance the intensity of preparation for sport with the other parts of life that were obviously important to you? And I don't want to take anything away from other athletes. I think for, for a year and a half before the 1984 Olympics, I did nothing else. I did not prepare for my career. I did not prepare academically. I was doing nothing but training. And that is what it takes in a sport as you and I were talking about in the breaks. I tied down to the one one hundredth of a second. I there, there was no balance in my life when I was really in hard training. There was one thing I was focused on and that was training. So when I slept, when I ate, exactly what I ate, if I drove for over an hour, I wasn't going to swim as fast in practice. Um um, if I like, just like getting excited, like for the, for opening ceremonies, I did not wa even watch them. We watched, you know, black and white comedies on television while the Olympic ceremonies were going on. Cause we, any, so everything was focused on doing well, how I meditated, how I, um, I, I just can't stress enough, zero, zero balance. Um, and, um, at the same time, I did uh, um, uh, taking that swing next to like, what are you going to do with your life? What's, what's important to you? That is a, that's a hard swing for all of us. I don't know anybody who, I mean, it's, it's hard to even do college and train at the same time. I've always felt really sorry for football players who really don't have a choice or basketball players that have to go through the college system. Um, my friends at Duke that I went to that I that were playing basketball the same time that I was swimming, man, oh man, that is I don't I don't think you people can really appreciate exactly how hard of a life that that is. So when I was training, I was consumed with I really did want to be the best in the world. I wanted to make history. I wanted to make my mark in the sport. I want I mean, I had like all these reasons on why it is that I was training as hard as I was. Um, when I stopped that, the main issue for me was what's worth it? What's worth me working that hard for anything? What 
What am I willing to give my life over to in the same way so that virtually every single thing else is nowhere near as important? And the answer is nothing. That I did have to learn how to balance. I did have to learn how to, you know, I've got three kids and a husband and a full-time job and a, right? But, but like what's worth it to give your professional life to? And making that next swing is difficult for everyone. It is this idea that, you're just going to float over to the next thing because on the one hand you are accustomed to being in a in a pool of people not pun unintended uh, <laughs> or, who are kind of doing the same thing that you're doing and who are equally as motivated and etc work you're all kind of on the same plane in the professional world it's not that way and to be professionally behind like all of that swimming didn't help me at all to be a good lawyer yeah. I had yeah. to go way down before I could be up, right? I had to, you know, learn how to write a brief the same way everybody else has to learn how to write a brief. Let's make sure people understand you were 22 at the 84 Olympics. So the the sort of the young teenage years were spent in the preparation by 22. And, and what's interesting is that Steinsipper was only 16 at the time. Um, was, was that gap something that, is noticeable if you were talking to you versus her at the time, different places in life, or would you would not even notice? Oh, no. I mean, I've got kids now. My son is 20. My girls are 15. There there just is a gap at between 16 and 22. Um, and I always liked her, and she's, she, but I mean, today, the two of us as women, she works for the Betty Ford Hazelton Center on Addiction. She's doing amazing things with her oh, life. That's incredible. Yeah, she's oh. phenomenal. Um, but, you know, we were bunkmates, right? We worked out together. Right. I mean, we were friends, but I was the oldest person on the team at 22. So I was sort of seen as this, you know, geriatric. <laughs> well, you know, I think that we're going to go ahead and take another break at this point. One of the things I do want to say, though, is it's very disappointing to hear that you were not watching the opening ceremonies. Since I was a Los Angeles volunteer helping to put on the opening ceremonies with the card stunts that were done in the stands, I helped to work on those. And you didn't watch them. And I'm devastated. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. I did watch them after, after the Olympics. Okay. And I was moved. After, and I thank you very, very much for everything that you did because the Olympics bring the whole world together in normal times. Yes, well, those of us in all Los Angeles will never forget the lack of traffic. That's what we all remember. <laughs> when we come back on After the Glory with uh, Lucy saying this is Gary Stern, our special guest, Nancy Hogshead Maker, and we will talk about not so much what happened at the Olympics, but the lead out that led to such an incredible life of meaning and purpose when we come back. This is Daryl Wayne, here to talk to you about the co-creator and co-host of After the Glory, Woodland Hills lawyer Gary Stern. When Gary's not talking to elite athletes, you can usually find him doing what he's been doing for almost 45 years, navigating the world of government. As a college student and young professional, Gary helped folks deal with federal and state agencies through his work as a caseworker with a local congressman and state senator. That work prepared Gary for a career as a consumer lawyer. Today, Gary still helps people in all walks of life but his passion nowadays is his service as a mediator, mostly in cases like the ones he's been handling for over four decades, where people have been injured in accidents or in connection with their employment. 
You can learn more about Stern Law, the law offices of Gary N. Stern at his website, www.sternlaw.org. That's S-T-E-R-N. Or you can call him at 818-710-2717. That's 818-710-2717. Raise your game to a higher degree. Educating industry professionals since 1991, the University of San Francisco has established itself as one of the leading sport management master's programs in the world. Our locations in San Francisco and Orange County give students access to two of the largest sport markets. Earn a master's degree in 23 months from industry-leading faculty and join a community of over 2,500 alumni and students. Learn more and apply today at usfca.edu forward slash SM. Go Dons! Role models, they can make all the difference. In our world today, they have never been more important. One of the nation's most successful mentoring organizations is Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of Los Angeles. Their mission is to assist youth in achieving their full potential through innovative and impactful programs. And no nonprofit agency does it better. Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of LA serves Jewish children, boys and girls in our local community with a mentoring program that's been going strong since 1915. That's only the beginning. This nationally known agency owns and operates Camp Bob Waldorf. Its summer camping and weekend retreat programs enrich the lives of youth throughout greater Los Angeles. Then there's a college support program And last but not least, work that helps kids all over the world through the Teen Talk app. Want to learn more? Go to jbbbsla.org. Donate. Get involved. There's no better way to make a difference. And we're back on After the Glory. Gary Stern here with my co-host Lucy Sang and our special guest Nancy Hogshead. Makar, the hero of the uh, 1984 Olympics with three golds and a silver. Um, And, of course, Nancy, we're in the middle of the Olympics now. And it really leads to something that I think is is central to uh, who you are as an individual. Uh, in 2014, you founded Champion Women, uh, as we talked about before. But obviously, between 1984 and 2014, there was a lot of preparation for that. Your life's work became the advocacy for Title IX, the incredible work that you did from Sexual Abuse and Safe Sport Authorization Act. Um, this year of all years, we have had a Olympics that will forever be remembered for the tennis player Osaka and, of course, Simone Biles and the issue of mental health. Um, and, of course, what happened with gymnastics and the uh, Nasser case. Um, take us through what guided you toward that passion for advocacy for gender equity and equality. Yeah, well, um, I had a terrible experience that was not related to sport, but I was at Duke uh, and I was out running in between two campuses, East and West, and I got raped for about two and a half hours. Oh my. Yeah, because I I healed because of sport. So sport gave me a place to own my own body again and to, there's like, if you talk to a therapist, they'll tell you like one of the best ways to recover from PTSD. I had a terrible case of PTSD is hard, hard physical exercise. And then there's all these mental exercises that I did to help me to be able to recover. Okay, so I I knew as a lawyer, I wanted to do something with women. I just didn't know really what. 
my last coach at the um, who was getting me ready for the 1984 Olympics, his name is Mitch Ivy. Mitch Ivy is now banned from swimming um, forever. And he is banned because he was molesting one of my teammates. And he molested many other young girls before and many other young girls after. And um, he's he's a bad hombre or bad news. <laughs> and so he um, so I knew that there was a an ethos in sport that coaches dated their athletes. They were not dating them. They were molesting them. We, we have all these boundaries that exist, say if somebody's a therapist or somebody's a teacher or somebody's a, a prison guard or a, in a physician, lots of other places where we say, you know, there's no romantic or sexual relationships allowed. But in coaching, somehow they got out from under all these boundaries. So coaches were abusing their powers in order to be able to prey on their athletes. And so that's what sort of got me into the issue of sexual abuse. Um, I started working on the issue around 2010 and we made some major changes. We got the Olympic Committee to flatly prohibit romantic and sexual relationships whenever there was a coaching relationship there. So, you know, that was good. But then the Olympic Committee didn't do anything to enforce it. So we knew that just like drugs, the, Olymp the national governing bodies and sport in general is pretty bad at doing drug testing. So I actually ended my honeymoon, <laughs> welcome to being married to me, to, in order, <laughs> in order to uh, advocate for creating WADA or USADA where Travis Tigert is now the head of it. Um, because so sport is really bad at sort of policing their own, not just when it comes to drugs, but when it came to powerful coaches as well. And so we had to create this separate entity that was going to address it. What put the turbocharge on, what put the issue on steroids was Larry Nassar. Not, not Larry Nassar, but those survivors um, were the Rachel Den Hollanders, the, the Allie Reismans, the Michaela Maroney's were phenomenal at uh, advocating for change. We already had all the, the draft statutes. Uh, we already had all of, like here's, you know, I've written out like here's what a safe sport should look like. Um, we were, anyway, so we, we, we did a lot to make sure that the organization, we're still not done with all of our advocacy, but, um, but I, I know what sport can do for somebody. Uh, I think that it is one of the biggest predictors of how well somebody's going to do in life, both professionally and everything from healthier babies to making more money to staying in the workforce. Uh, having a sports experience is a truly powerful thing. We got to make sure that the bad parts of it don't uh, uh, aren't aren't there. That's the how sexism interferes with the good parts of sport. So that's what Champion Women does. We provide the legal advocacy for girls and women's sports. We do the policy type changes. I get calls all the time and I, I have a good network of attorneys to send them out to. Um, so yeah, so that that's what, uh, that's, yeah, we're, we're in a very different position now than we were back in 2010, but we still have got a ways to go. Nancy, with all that, 
Champion Women has accomplished, of course, uh, that you have accomplished. And with our listeners here today, what are some ways, you know, fans of sports or even just people who are passionate about sports, whether they are athletes or not, can can support the, the mission and motto of what Champion Women is doing? Well, there's a number of ways people can be supportive. One is sign up for our alerts. Go on to championwomen.org. It's all one word, championwomen.org. We can also donate there. It is through our donations that we're able to do the work that we do. Another one of our big projects that your listeners will be interested in is Title IX. We have, our website tells how every single um, college and university is doing regarding numbers of opportunities, scholarships, and treatment. And you can go on and see every single school. Some schools, Duke University needs to add 100 women to its athletic department. Um, the rival school, UNC Chapel Hill, needs to add 362 women yeah. to its athletic department. The, sex, the sexism that is, even though we have phenomenal statutes, regulations, case law, the, the women are still being denied a billion dollars in total in scholarship dollars. That's just scholarship. That doesn't include like all the women's coaches and the opportunities to participate. If sexism was evenly distributed, um, every single college and university would have to add 3.5 teams. Well, that's an that's a that's lot. A, and, that, and that raises an interesting question about, I just saw this in the, in the news today, that the Paralympics is being uh, criticized because they denied a deaf and blind athlete and aid, and the comment was that there's a difference between gender equity or equity in general and equality. In the couple of minutes we have left, what's the difference between equality and equity, and how does that inform your work? Sure, equality would mean that the that uh, colleges and universities would have to have mirror image sports. So if men have football, women get football. So as opposed to the way the law is, it's equity, which is you can have a list of you know, five sports for men and uh, 10 sports for women who are much smaller sports. And those two things equal out in the end. So that's that's the difference between equality and equity. And we are not there at all. And that's one of our things is one of Champion Women's main projects is getting getting equity, getting uh, women what the law promised them 50 years ago. If you would have told me that I would still be working on school basic compliance with really easy to measure law, I would have thought you all were crazy, that this would be done. We would be finished with this one. Is, is Simone Biles a hero in your, in your view? Absolutely. In every possible way, Simone Biles is a is a hero. She just to her graciousness, how she went about um, just recognizing that she was having the twisties, that she had something, and that she, and then to go on and be supportive of her teammates, and not be you know make it about poor me. Instead, she was out there and cheering for other countries. Um, for her to be able to, to finally be able to compete and get a bronze medal in the Olympics, I am so proud of her. She's the only person left of the Larry Nasser survivors. She still advocates for making sure that safe, the sport is safe for athletes. She's doing an amazing job. Incredible. Well, I, I just, Lucy, this has just been a thrill to, uh, I'm sure you agree to talk to Nancy. Um, we didn't even get to all of the incredible awards, membership in the International Swimming Hall of Fame, 
the uh, uh, named as one of the most influential people in 2007 in the 35-year history of Title IX by Sports Illustrated. This is a true hero of sport. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today on After the Glory. Um, and uh, until next time, Lucy, uh, we'll go to our closing theme song. Nancy, if you have a chance, listen to our theme song, After the Glory, written by a good friend of mine named uh, T. Dan Hofstead, uh, an animator with uh, Warner Brothers and Disney, who uh, in, in his uh, side work does a little bit of work with uh, song, and, uh, and it's just a wonderful song about uh, after the glory in, in all the right ways uh, that that phrase implies. Uh, until next time. Lucy and, and Gary, thank you all very much for having me on here. I really appreciate this opportunity. We loved it. Until next time, take care. Lucy and I hope you enjoyed this edition of After the Glory. As we leave you until next time, we want to thank our team, our producer, Mark Allen, executive producer from Podclips, Mike Anderson, and our sound engineer and editor, the insane Daryl Wayne. We are also grateful for music by T. Dan Hofstede. And as we close out this episode of After the Glory, we honor our guest with our theme song, written and sung by my brother in baseball, T. Dan, the master of music from the islands and the slack key guitar. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and athletic. Living the dream on a shooting star. Hometown crowd cheering what you are. Living large and riding high. Razzling and dazzling across the sky. Back in the day, so young and strong. Work or play, you can do no wrong. But when that ride is What you gonna do after the glory? Step back and take inventory. Checking out new territory. Not every day will be congratulatory. Hopefully you're still revelatory. Come on down and tell your story. After the glory.